Hi, Jeremy. Bonjour, Raphaël. Comment ça va? Bon, is there a good afternoon in French? Because I know bonsoir and bonjour. Uh, bon petit déjeuner, no. Um, <laughs> There's bonne yeah. année, bonne journée. Uh, yeah. Bonne journée, you know, extends throughout the day. The whole yeah. day. But you après say midi, that when you leave. Après midi. You could say I'm not going to try to... I, I mean, I had four years of French classes, but I don't remember much. No, mais après-midi I lived is, in Paris is afternoon. I, It's a literal yeah. afternoon. Yeah. Bon après-midi. Yeah. But no, no one says that. <laughs> Maybe says the, bon French, no. the French are done by noon. They're like, that's it. It's over. It's time to party. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm speaking French because you, you were in Normandy. Yeah. With your family. With How family. was that? It was fun. Uh, it was more family time than exploring... Uh, restaurants and doing that kind of thing so it's oh, just no. uh, hang, hanging out no i wanted it to be all about restaurants to make sense for this week's episode i hate your family i want <laughs> restaurants <laughs> no 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 but uh we, we we ate at the cafe in the village but it was a small town and uh, it was mm. fine but yeah lots of walks by the the sea no we were in the, the national park so it was forest walks in the, oh, uh, wow. cycling yeah yeah normandy is bigger than just the coast Yeah, describe it. Like, I think we think of just a war and death and, um, you know, Normandy Well, they invasion. haven't had a war in a while, so... I know, since yeah. the 1940s. But I'm so tired of people seeing everything through the lens of uh, fear. Mm-hmm. I know, me too. Yeah. But how does that relate to Normandy? What are they afraid well, of? Well, everybody's like, oh, Normandy, D-Day, whatever, soldiers. It's like, that was a long time ago. They're We've making decided. good butter ever since. <laughs> good butter? Yeah, great yeah. bread, good butter, amazing oysters. That's what I remember. I've been there once. Okay. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's great. How would you um, describe the butter, though? What would What's unique about the butter? <laughs> Creamy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's just good. But... Um, um, There's a segue no, it, here. it was a very chill time. It was just the uh, we had a little cabin with a view of the rolling hills, and then uh, my sister has a little kid, is six months old, so we were playing with him, and uh, it was just family time, really. Oh, that's awesome! But you're yeah. back in um, back in Amsterdam in your family home right now, right? In Utrecht, yeah, that's right. Oh, oh sorry, then, I always uh, say Amsterdam, and I mean, I know Utrecht and Amsterdam are like 30 minutes apart, but I'll give them their distinct everything in the Netherlands <laughs> is 30 minutes yeah. apart. So. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, I went to Paris also. I'm I'm releasing a new book, a fancy book, a small edition. And uh, we did a little video documentary and interview there with the publisher. And so that's coming out in a few weeks. Oh, in Paris. That's cool. And, it's yeah. Been, uh, it's been a while since I've been there. Did, did uh, Is it all just burned to the ground? <laughs> I'm just kidding with the stereotype. It's, of less, it's less destroyed than... Uh, New people. York, I think Soho was really destroyed, but um, mm. it did feel less touristy, which is nice, but it also felt a bit abandoned. And uh, mm. uh, I mean, yeah, because I I've think, heard that I think, they're struggling. I think both New York and Paris, with less people, you see more of the maintenance that has to be done. Mm. Or, If you know oh, what you I mean. mean, like I went to yeah. the, the Centre Pompidou for an exhibition to see everything and it was a very limited amount of visitors and then you notice like oh this museum needs some work oh interesting but why aren't they and working it, my, my friend there? compared my friend compared new york to a classic race car and it's cool and it's old and iconic and it's going really fast and and because of covid the car stopped and everybody looks at the car is like oh shit this thing needs a lot of work <laughs> 
That's interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison because in New York, so much of the aesthetic and what we package up as being quintessentially New York is uh, is almost an old idea that um, we keep in like we keep in the world and we like we refurbish it, like we oil yeah. it and we we treasure well, it's also, it. It wasn't New York the first metropolis. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you could say Cairo. I don't know the statistics like at the time, but but someone was mentioning when. It was the Spanish flu. New York already had 5.6 million people. Oh, right. But wasn't it yeah. like, wouldn't Istanbul have been bigger at that time? You mean like in North America or in like the Western world kind of thing? Yeah, I'm not sure. But the, it, it was the high rises started there, right? In Chicago. Yeah. yeah from yeah. A, like a, from a modern standpoint, like, um, the, yeah. you know, like the I'm, Manhattan Maybe sky, in ancient, yeah. ancient Egypt, uh, there was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like. What about the Incan uh, yeah. monuments? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so yeah, from in terms of the modern of modern era, kind of yeah, for sure. Yeah. So how the, do we segue into the movie? Well, I think like you were talking about, I wanted to go from your bread and butter thing, and like oh, you know, okay, yeah. you know, one of the things that happened after the war. Well, I, I would say if that was the segue, like normally, yeah, the French are food obsessed, just like the Japanese, and French food yeah. has a role in this movie, but. This trip specifically, we did get nice butter and nice bread, and it was delicious. And there is, even though we didn't try, like we didn't make an effort, it wasn't a culinary trip. Mm-hmm. Still, the basics that you get are way better than in the Netherlands or in England. Or yeah, but I was gonna say I like the the direct line here from you know war to bread to our movie today, which is Tampopo, is like at the end of the Second World War, like the Japanese. You know, we're starving and they didn't know what to do. And so the Americans sent them all this wheat and said, you should make bread, wheat, bread. <laughs> it's really cheap. It's easy. Yeah. And they're like, this guy Momofuko, which wasn't his original name. Um, and David Chang, I guess, probably was inspired by. He was like, fuck that. Like, we make, we eat noodles. Like, let's, um, let's like make noodles with this wheat but isn't, that they're sending it, us. You're saying ramen was a... It's not an invention, a post-war invention. It was already no, no, but instant it was ramen. They took from the Chinese. Instant yeah. ramen came from this having this wheat surplus from the Americans, oh, like as an apology for the war, and and then they're like, I, I, I they're just like, want to intersect for a second yeah. with one of my rude interruptions, but um, <laughs> let me just tell you this compelling history story. No, so, but I want to intersect specifically for a specific reason, a lesson that I learned in high school. And my art teacher at the time started out studying history. So he's interested in history, goes to university, and then history is just a list of all the awful things that happened through time. It's just, then they conquered this, then Genghis Khan basically killed everybody, then the Egyptians killed everybody, then the Romans killed everybody, then the Greeks killed everybody. Do you watch that show Norsemen, by the way, on Netflix? No, but uh, and he said he was so tired of looking at history through the lens of conquering that he studied art history and through that he started making art himself and he thought this is just a more positive lens of looking at the history of humanity because the news always focuses on everything that goes bad but it, let's say there's a birthday party or someone having a good time that's not going to show up on the news or oh, we, we finished the, the new tiles on the street and it looks a lot better. It's not going to make the news. Or, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh, this community center just helped a lot of people and they have a better life. It just doesn't cut the news. So I'm like so exhausted. 
Yeah, and so exhausted of looking at life through war. And I think it's an unrealistic representation. Yeah, but and I was. About, I think, yeah, I wasn't going there. Okay. I was going to. I was going to the post-war, and then like the invention of ramen, which was like kind of like an ideal similar to the Bauhaus, which is like good food. You know, we want to feed everyone with good food and yeah, everyone yeah, loves yeah. ramen. Let's make it fast, easy and convenient. And you know, what's interesting about ramen. So this guy, like apparently, you know, his, his, uh, his wife was cooking and then he like, couldn't figure out, he's like, how am I going to get this ramen to like stay, stay self shelf stable so I can like distribute it and we have all this weed and blah, blah, blah. And then she was cooking with oil and he dropped in the oil, it dehydrated the rest is history. But it's not really because like the first ramen was like a, a premium instant ramen as a not the first ramen instant ramen was a premium product it was like it, and it was the nissan company that this guy momofuku ran mm. or nishan i think is the right pronunciation pronunciation and uh it was actually like 3500 yen or something which is like three bucks or 350 which at the time in the 70s was a lot of money um yeah because so, you could get a fresh ramen for less yeah yeah exactly yeah. so you're paying for this like convenience and then cup it was the, it wasn't until like the cup a soup like noodles in a cup that things really took off but i was just like we're we're going to talk about the movie and the movie's not just about ramen obviously it's about food culture and generally but how ramen i mean you could argue that this movie made ramen popular in the united states some people have yeah. have made that uh that argument and it we can get into the plot but i i do think there's a lot of like <laughs> there's no cultural plot and business that. history i mean first of all yeah the plot is <laughs> It's loose at best. <laughs> uh, it's more of like a series of montages, but um, or like little vignettes. Yeah, it felt like but, a Monty uh, Python movie. It's just lots of sketches. Well, uh, yeah, I wrote you a text. I was like, "This is the like most bizarrely edited film I've ever seen uh, <laughs> in my life." Like, there's so many non sequiturs, and but the basic premise is, if we describe it for our listeners, a truck driver is driving in the rain. He has like kind of a Clint Eastwood. Um, vibe to him, Lone the Wolf, actor. Uh, sort of comes this in guy Kent, is it Kent uh, oh no it's uh, I can't pronounce his name but Tsutsumu Yamazaki I think is mm-hmm. his, uh, the actor's name he kind of has this like cowboy aesthetic he wears a cowboy hat he smokes cigarettes constantly he's good anyway, at fighting gets out of his truck in the rain because he's hungry um, with his and his co-drivers with him and they go into this little shop and they have some ramen but it's not so good and they they for some reason like this is where the movie stops making sense already like after the first scene they're like we got to help this uh this ramen shop owner um and so the yeah. movie it was really about but then it's tr- intersected yeah. there's there's two stories at first so one of the stories is this this lonely truck driver and his friend i guess they're not lonely because they're together but but kind of the, the the cowboy that shows up in a town and out of nowhere he decides to help this woman who's struggling he he gets in a fight with her clientele and wakes up and she helps him and she's she's good at home cooking but she's not that good at ramen. Yeah, and, and he admits he's like, "I'm gonna story. help you to make this a, a legendary ramen shop." And at the same time, there's an intersection of a story of a couple, a, a wealthy couple, kind of like on a honeymoon, that is exploring the world in a weird way of erotic play with food so they and and it keeps but that that's not really a story driven it's it's not that story (laughs) doesn't go anywhere just interruptions and i think it's a gangster i'm not sure if it's like a it's a wealthy gangster and something yeah well there's no they never explain who they are but they're very well dressed they're dressed up and they keep going into fancy locations and eating the best of the best and Mm -hmm. 
so that interrupts might, the story. We might explain that story because yeah. the other story is more of an arc, and this story is just more like a group of scenes with the same actors, but they're kissing and then they're passing an egg yolk between each other's mouths, <laughs> and then they I have a live scene. shrimp in a glass of brandy that tickles her on her stomach. And so they they use food in this way with their body and playful and high end and yeah. Yeah, I think food and sensuality and desire are all kind of um, are actually you know evidence throughout the film. Yeah, but and, most and, and made I think up. One of the things yeah. is that the the Japanese food represents the working class and simple food done really well, and the other couple represents decadence and and sort of. Mm-hmm. European fine dining combined with Japanese style and yeah. Right. And there's a bunch of montages like that that interrupt. Like there's one at an Italian restaurant where there's like someone trying to teach other there's this woman teaching other Japanese women how to properly eat pasta and not to slurp like Italian it, pasta. Like, like you would yeah. slurp noodles in Japan, but there they're like, No, no, you must roll you know, you know, use your fork on a spoon and rotate it. And then they see an Italian man like slurping as noodles and you know making a pig and they're like well, well i guess it's okay you know slurping <laughs> noodles and um yeah so and then these, the, like, i think the second half of the movie the, the the pretension of actually there being a story they just give up and then it's just sketches of like an old woman going into a supermarket trying to press all the food she's pressing cheese and pressing bread with her thumbs and she has a fetish for well, it's what you want to do when you're at the store, right? Like, we all have that feeling like, oh, I just want to yeah. press this thing. And then you see a, a lost kid with a little sign that says, I only eat natural food. Please don't give me sweets. And then Got a carrot the old guy gives him an ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it, it gets almost to a Monty Python level of, of just non-related scenes and yeah, don't even have a clear punchline. You're right. At some point, it feels like a television show where it's like they don't even try to transition between the scenes. Like they'll even just cut the music off and, you know, go straight to one of these weird scenes. Yeah. Like they they need to find the master of of ramen broth and he turns out to be a homeless guy. But it's this group of homeless people that is very uh, fanatical and obsessive about food so they I love that though that, fancy I love that concept though that you know and yeah. you're right there's like this thing where they talk about the spectrum from working class to the wealthy and these like these homeless men are you know connoisseurs because they they go through all the trash and they've they, they, they've decided you know when there's a half bottle of wine they've had this wine or that wine and you know then they know how to pair it with <laughs> whatever leftovers yeah. they found strewn about but the, and basically so they, it's yeah. a movie about obsession yeah and food ultimately and i think desire and and then it's weirdly wrapped inside of a, like a rocky kind of like um you know training for the big match kind of yeah, yeah. uh thing there's where even this, a montage this, with music and them building yeah, the restaurant and, and yeah, yeah like so there's like physical training it's basically like rocky running up the stairs where she's like running along you know uh, you know alongside um this truck driver who's decided to train her and made it, made it his mission. And then eventually there's like five men. And this is where the movie has this bizarre thing where there's like five, like kind of working class men from different backgrounds, like a chauffeur driver, the truck driver, contractor, um, like some old, old guy. Yeah. Old, and then really there's a wealthy guy. patron who helps the, yeah. Yeah. And so they're all trying to help her rehabilitate this ramen shop to come you know, the best ramen shop with all the lineups and they go and visit and spy on other ramen shops. And so there's kind of this corporate espionage element as she's trying to perfect um, her shop and make it the best in the area. 
And they don't really tell you if it's Tokyo, do they? Or no, it, but it feels, feels like, like it. it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a um, big city. It's it's like a, it feels like the shop is in an un, unmarked neighborhood. What do you say? Like a unremarkable neighborhood in a big city. Right, but Tokyo, of course, is made up of multiple cities, and you yeah, know, it's just enormous that way. So it, it feels totally natural that like it, there'd be local competition and people would line up for hours. Yeah. Well, I, um, I think I really wanted to watch this movie after we watched Spirited Away because that was also about obsession and, and um, making the best of the best for your guests and making an experience in, a, uh, in an onsen where you have the best food and the best herbal baths and the best towels and, uh, and sort mm-hmm. of the, the contrast of the people who are facilitating the guests who are working their ass off and don't get to enjoy so much. But they find enjoyment in making it perfect. Yeah, and, yeah. And this movie, the first movie was an animation and kind of surreal, and this movie is live action and maybe more absurdist. But they both deal with this obsession with quality, even to the detriment of the owner. Like it, that's one of the key things I think of of U.S. food culture is that you can bring the quality down, but you can expand the brand and. The, the consistency is what sells it. So even if it's not the best, it's the same shitty burger every part of the country, every part of the world. Like, mm-hmm. no one would argue that McDonald's makes the best burger, but it's just reliable. Yeah, but and, I think, like, America does have a similarly obsessive culture in barbecue. You know, like, um, if you... I don't know. I don't like American barbecue, but... But, but the, pe- the, the, the obsession and the tradition and the craft is, like... There's a new... Um, chef's table series right now on netflix on barbecue and if you've gone into texas barbecue like i've done a tour of barbecue in america maybe i haven't done enough but to me american barbecue tastes like everything soaked in coca-cola it's so sweet Mm, i think you have you have to do a tour of barbecue and there are different styles and it definitely gets into the i find american cooking they use a lot of sugar i find it very yeah yeah but i'm just saying like in small towns like across Texas or in throughout the, the South and the Carolinas, there is like, there are distinct differences. And sometimes I'm like a little over it, but also like I was talking to Kristen about it. Cause I had some like, um, I had some Nashville fried chicken uh, last night or whatever. And it's like supposed to, you're supposed to have it with white bread, which is true of barbecue too. And she's like obsessing over the quality of this white bread. And I was like, white bread just tastes like dust. She's like, no, if you had the right white bread, <laughs> And yeah, then it does, it's like a cloud, and I think ramen. I cringe you might a little bit. No, no, but like I think in this film, like even you know, ramen would be considered a relatively simple food, you know. And then, like, there's that scene where well, I, I think the to a lot of Japanese ramen. people, ramen represents the hamburger. It's it's similar in that it's not the mm-hmm. healthiest thing, but it's very hearty and it's a simple dish that you can rely on. It has that same comfort food feeling. Yeah, and so like. But each element has to get has to be nailed, right? And in the movie, they they kind of allude to that. With yeah, I, I just broth, want to intersect the, noodles, the, pork. the health mm-hmm. aspect because um, you could argue which which food is better, and it's a non argument. Like, is is Italian food better? Is American food better? And every genre of food has some has has a champion, and some people do it better than others. Mm-hmm. But the Japanese, to me, have mastered the obsession with taste and health and combining those and i feel like in western food and especially in american food there's health food on one side and delicious food on the other side Mm. and somehow i don't know how but the japanese seem very healthy Uh, I, i looked up obesity statistics and 
they're way at the bottom. There's a few countries that are less have less obesity, but they're still yeah. in the top five of the world. Um, so there's something, a balance of tradition and food making and eating and discipline that you don't have to separate health from well, enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find that, work, that you know, very magical, <laughs> like that idea that you can eat, eat, be obsessive about food and make it amazing and still be healthy. Yeah, I mean, just think about, though, that scene with the connoisseur of ramen, and he's like, you have to, like, treasure the pork. There's just, like, three slices or two slices of pork. Yeah, like, that's what I mean. That's it. what I mean. And and yeah. just, th- there's this cliche, like, never trust a skinny chef or some bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't like seeing, when I see chefs and they're cooking and they look so unhealthy, I'm thinking food is such a big part of health, and why should you, okay, I get a cheat day once a week to eat delicious, and the rest of yeah. the week I have to eat raw broccoli. Um, well, it's kind of interesting because yeah. ramen. So ramen wasn't the first Japanese export from an, into the American market. Sushi was, and it came into the American market under the guise of like healthy eating. Um, in the, yeah, they in the consider that as a treat. That it's in Japan, it's considered very fattening, so they don't eat it too often. Yeah, but in the eighties, it was like you know coming out of, I guess the in, you know some indulgence in the seventies or something or early eighties. Yeah, like it yeah. was this health the health craze of the eighties. Sushi was tied to that. And yeah, ramen didn't come later until... Sushi rice boiled with sugar. Yeah. So. yeah. What's interesting, I think, about the movie in terms of American culture and ramen is a lot of people give this movie credit for helping um, make ramen an obsession in America. Where I, And I don't know about our listeners, but I, I can speak to Toronto and you can speak to New York. And obviously Toronto's not America, but we have um, ramen shops on every corner here in Toronto. So like mm-hmm. after this, I'm actually going to go up to one Sensatai, yeah. which is like, um, like actually there's, and there's a lot of debate over the best ramen. Yeah. It's hard to watch this film. Like I was, I just watched a little bit more before we got on the podcast and not want to go like have that yeah. sensory experience. Um, but for us, there's like debates over the best places in the city and there are lineups outside the shops. And when a new place opens, it's still a big deal. Like, you know, which you'd expect. It's just a bizarre thing. Like there aren't very many other cuisines that I can think of outside of maybe taco shops or something like that that create, that it, you know, for like, like you said, a very simple food. Yeah, competitive. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, one, one of the, so I, I'm sorry to sound negative about America, but I think America's in a tough place right now and is also has a branding problem. Like I think the idea of scaling up and big is good and all that thing, and this. I think that has a negative taste right now in in in, a, in this moment in time. I think the idea of growth overall and all that kind of stuff what makes America is I think in our generation there's a lot of questions. Mm. So I do but, I do think that's why a dish like ramen maybe is appealing that it's about mm. the perfection and it, not about mass production. And no matter where yeah. you go, it's a reasonable price. Like even if I go to David Chang's Momofuku here for a bowl of ramen in Toronto, it's not going to cost me more than fifteen bucks, right? Like, yeah. Um, but even it's like funny. With caviar on yeah. it. Yeah, I think some Japanese friends came to New York and they wanted ramen. They were shocked how expensive it was because it's way cheaper in Japan, of course. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I've had some. So in Japan, of course, we should mention that this idea of food culture and lines around the block exists not just for ramen but for every specialty like it could be for katsu could be for udon yeah. noodles like a very specific type of noodle yeah but it and could even everyone be for uses fruit like, like yeah. anything like strawberries the way they're packaged yeah. or the way they're, they're yeah. grown and, yeah so the, i think and every, everyone uses a special kind of food blog it's basically like craigslist 
uh, for food. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's a review yeah. website, but it's not sophisticated. It's like a, a shitty PHP kind of site. There's no mobile app. And everyone trusts the reviews from that. And that's how people seemingly move around, at least in Tokyo, uh, from restaurant to restaurant. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think I think um, one of the reasons I love Japan and why I think a lot of our peers love Japan is it, it really is a very nerdy country. And I mean nerdy in the best sense of the word, where you're obsessed to the point where you lose sleep over it. It seems unimportant to other people. Nobody can imagine you would put that much time into something that maybe even because you put so much time into it, you lose money. Like people are just yeah. finish it quickly and make more of it. And they're like, no, it has to be perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I think that's so deep in Japanese culture that uh, that's something that appeals to me. And you feel it when you're there, that somebody can be obsessed. Like a cashier has to do has to be the perfect cashier. You can't just be any cashier and smiling and bowing and doing it as yeah. quickly as possible and putting the groceries in the bag in the perfect arrangement that it balances and t- taking everything to the most extreme point of quality. I mean, it was definitely, I mean, yeah, definitely um, felt it when I was there. I do think that in American culture, certain chefs are celebrated, but you're right. It's at the high level rather than at the like kind of hero dreams of sushi, like subway station well, guy. Obsessing. Did we, we discussed the movie, the founder, right? Yeah. The McDonald's thing, the McDonald's movie. Yeah. Cause it, it, the, the way that sh- the McDonald's shop started out did remind me of the, the way uh, they were talking about movement in the kitchen. So, in the ramen mm. movie, they're spying on other restaurants, and they say some restaurants the chefs are wasting their movements. They're like, oh uh, yeah, being kind of distracted and talking to each other and making jokes. And they're like, no, this should be one organism where every movement has a function and it's a ballet. And if you remember the founder, the 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 Kroc brothers or the, the McDonald's brothers, were designing the kitchen so that every movement was perfect and it was like a ballet yeah. of efficiency and. I'm sure yeah, those first burgers tasted pretty good. And then Ray Kroc came along and said, like, okay, let's franchise this. Let's not worry about the quality. Let's worry about real estate prices. Let's conquer the world. And yeah. I'm pretty sure the burgers 20 years later tasted a lot less good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think... Um, I mean, the tipping point in that movie is where he wants to use powdered base for the milkshake instead of fresh ice cream. Sure. Like, if you want to see what McDonald's would have been if it didn't scale, it's probably like something like In-N-Out Burger, right? Like, it it didn't scale as much, and so... Yeah, but I think the last decade we've seen a trend of uh, fast casual and and people trying to Mm -hmm. bring quality to to fast food. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that, you know, you could have probably... I don't know, maybe that's a Japanese export, the idea of, like, the general, like, everyday person uh, really seeking out the best of working class food like and when i say working class food that's not derogatory it's simple food done well yeah and um well working class food that is so good that a very rich man even would make his way out to eat with the working class well there's that like classic um trump moment from a few years ago and he's just like playing (laughs) theatrically but like he invites, you know, I can't remember if it was a football or basketball team over to the White House. I think House, it was a football ca- team, yeah. He caters the the dinner with just, you know, McDonald's hamburgers, right? Well, it was a government and, shutdown, so the, the, the kitchen staff was not working. And he's like, you know what, we'll just get takeout. And he, 
he took this photo of a buffet of burgers. So he's like, let's just order a thousand of everything. And it, it was this weird, <laughs> grotesque, sort of neoclassical French uh, <laughs> Versailles type of room filled with stacks of burgers and wrappings. <laughs> It's pretty perfect. Yeah. It's like uh, but it, yeah, it's, I, I still, it's like going to the ball and then by, on the way home grabbing a burger. Yeah, I still stand by the idea that uh, American cuisine has this problem that they can't perfect the burger and it can be delicious and Shake Shack, I, I love it, it's great, but you can't have it all the time. You just have it every now and then. And I know for my mm -hmm. friends in, in Tokyo, they have ramen or soba almost every day of the week and they're all skinny. So this whole notion of uh, there's treat food and then there's uh, everyday mm. disciplined food. And they're like, no, we have soba every, every week for lunch and then uh, a very small breakfast and a modest dinner and we're healthy. And I, I, I don't know. I think uh, I'm, I'm not being judgmental of, of people uh, being unhealthy, but there's just this systematic imbalance of enjoyment and discipline where, where they could be uh, together. It, it's the same in the Netherlands. I, I see this, there's sort of the the dichotomy of, of you're being punished if you want to be healthy and if mm -hmm. you want to enjoy yourself, you're, you're going to be punished later when you end up in the hospital. I see, yeah, like uh, yeah. you're going to pay for enjoyment. There's a sort of Irish yeah. kind of Protestant, like it's a sin to be happy. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, the basic notion of, of Dutch food is like make it as cheap as possible, as fast as possible. So I, I remember uh, me and two friends, we would always make our way out to get fresh bread and fresh sliced meats. And this friend of ours is like, I just can't imagine you guys spend so much time and money on food and all you have to do is just fill your stomach and, and go. Because there's more <laughs> oh, important the, things to do. Yeah, the Soylent school of thought. Like, why not just uh, yeah, put it all and, in a but, shake but, that tastes like sawdust? Yeah, like like we would go to a separate bakery and a separate butcher and a separate vegetable produce store. And he would just go to the supermarket and get everything for a third or a quarter of the price of what we paid mm -hmm. and save so much time. And Well, I think like part of that is the industrialization of uh, food distribution in America and frozen food you know, beginning in the yeah. 1960s, 50s and 60s. And that, you know, refrigeration. It, it, it's an acceptance. It's like, yeah, this works and like different priorities. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think as a culture, you can be like, this is unacceptable. I can't eat this crap. But if you mm -hmm. accept it. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I can, so I've been eating, let's put it back in the context of ramen. Like I've been eating ramen since I was a little boy. My mom would like dress it up, you know, like in the first thing I learned was like, you can take an instant ramen and crack an egg in it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, and you can cut you, some So you started out with it. instant ramen. That was the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And I still eat instant ramen at least once a week, if not like two times a week, <laughs> because wow. I never stopped um, because it's such a, it's fast, but you can make it pretty good if you know how to upgrade it, like a little bit of sesame oil. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, I should be out there buying the fresh noodle because this is a instant ramen like i said earlier is like a deep fried noodle so it's like extremely unhealthy in that context but some if you look at the calories it on a, it some dry. people eat yeah, it as a, people, as a chip yeah yeah you can sprinkle the i like the dry noodles but i almost never do that because i consider that like yeah exactly like it's like the doritos kind of thing but you i also buy like a special the brand pie yeah yeah do you want to describe yeah. it well, it, it, I've never had it, but you take a bag of Fritos and 
I think you throw cheddar cheese and throw it in the microwave in the bag and then eat it. Is that it? Yeah, you can throw all kinds of stuff in there, like ground beef or whatever. I mean, it, yeah, something. I'm, I'm a Dutch-born, now American person, so I, I don't want to be the European that poo-poos America because Dutch food culture is way worse than... Uh, and, and English food culture is way worse. I think America is really not bad food-wise. It's just well, you have to Ameri- make an effort. I mean, the British will get mad at you because of, the, of their pub, gastro pubs, but whatever. I think you're right. Well, I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen places in, in the UK where they make fried uh, fish and fried chicken and pizza and they throw it all in the same deep fryer so i think though in any region they wouldn't do that in the u.s there's in any region though there's a specific food that they there is this treatment similar to the movie um like in in the uk it might be like sunday dinner or a a pasty uh, you know cornish pasty or something where people can have a debate about the relative flakiness of the crust or you know, various, yeah, I know. Uh, People get very of... specific about fried food also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. fried chicken, you could go on like a really long uh, kind of narrative about like good fried chicken versus bad fried chicken. Yeah. Um, but um, but uh, how do you yeah. think the movie sort of... Um, I don't know any other movie that tackles the topic of this food perfection as much as this one. Well, I like your Monty Python analysis because it, what ends up happening is this is like a movie about loving food and love, ultimately, and desire. The only thing that really tripped me up over and over again, and maybe we can unpack this without making it too political, is you've got these like five guys trying to help this poor, helpless woman. And women are cast in a very interesting role. Like they say over and over in the movie, like, even you could be great as a woman. <laughs> like the, yeah. the well, male, male chef. Yeah. yeah, they say like, oh, I didn't know, I, I really wasn't rooting for you because I thought that women can't make uh, ramen, but you, you didn't disappoint. But there's this one scene that I wanted to call out, which is weird in that way. There's two scenes. First of all, the, the credits where there's a baby nursing uh, a mother's breast for the entire <laughs> credits. But the, <laughs> the one prior to that is like, there's this, there's another cut scene that makes no sense. Um, and a guy's like running after a separate cutscene that made no sense where there was a, like a robbery um, running home and he like knocks people over and he gets home and his, his, his wife is like on the ground and she's dying and there's medical professionals there and the children were all, you know, are all oh, gathered yeah. around <laughs> and she's about to die. He's like, don't die, wake up. And then he's like, ah, make dinner. <laughs> so she'll, well, uh, yeah, like, yeah. They're, they're trying to revive her from a shock yeah. and he's like trying to revive her saying, here, have a cup of water and nothing will revive her. They try different things and they, they finally says, oh, make food for us. And then she kind of half wakes up as a zombie and, and makes them fried rice. And and then like she he, she makes the fried rice and they just like gorge it. And then he's like, this is really good. And she's like, she smiles and then she, she falls over dead. And then <laughs> she like, finally she's, drops dead, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, they're eating pretty late at night, 9.20. It's interesting. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but the, so in the that mother scene, dies to feed her children, yeah. Yeah, in that scene, which seems like almost like a classic Tokyo scene where, you know, the guy, the they live in a home near the, the train. And so it's really about like this work ethic and like working hard. But then like we the do mother have to say the is, family's very sad that they die. But at the same time, the father's like, finish this meal. This is the last hot meal your mother, your mother will ever cook. And it's something we yeah. don't really talk about as a culture. And I, I don't I only identify with it as a child. But I think if we go back to that breastfeeding scene, them them characterizing the woman as never being a great chef, but then also the scene where like 
you know, this woman exists, is her whole existence, she comes up from the dead just to cook dinner and then dies again. Um, now, like, there are two ways to read it. One is like, there's a there's a certain misogyny and use, usury of women, like, where, you know, they're used for the pleasure and desire of men, like men just feed off of women, and you could see it as a critique in the film, or you could read it the other way, I probably should have led with this other way and, and um, read it as like appreciation for, you know, that, that ability, that caregiving ability and that food is the ultimate expression of care. Um, to your point earlier, it's not just craft, like it's craft yeah. that serves a purpose to care but and literally like, li- like how help people live. It's a good point um, because the, the, the Tampopo, the main character who wants to make great ramen, is struggling because her husband died and he made ramen and she's having a hard time and so they're kind of disappointed in the food. Then they, the guy gets knocked out by a group of gangsters, wakes up with Tampopo and she's nursing him and making him a home-cooked meal and it's the best yeah. home-cooked meal he ever had. So traditionally yeah. we think of chefs making uh, spectacular food and women making plain food at home. Yeah. Uh, and then she slowly goes into the role of the star chef. So they make a star out of her. They dress her up. They get stylists. They dress up the place. They make the best broth. They get experts to help her. Uh, everything's customized to fit her height, and everything's perfected. So she goes into the role of the star chef. So it's kind of taking a shy woman out of the domestic kitchen and making her a star in a public kitchen. Um but the irony of yeah. it all is that I think home food is much more interesting to do well. I think, well, and that's maybe that's my point. That, yeah, that I think it's a great Making point. good pickles is, is more impressive to me than making good fried chicken because it's something you can eat every day. And if you can make the, the home and healthy food delicious and you have a healthy base instead of um, seeing healthy food is punishment and then every now and then you get to have fried chicken and barbecue drenched in coca-cola and all that bullshit Mm -hmm. Um, and traditionally we uh, the 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 star chefs are sort of like these bad boys on tv and the against the rules and fuck it let's put lots of butter and and the and the domestic sort of simple food of making a really good vegetable soup is not spectacular yeah, and I just think like um, you know, in my life, my mother is definitely. I mean, you know, cr- just just to finish, but famously, Anthony Bourdain, who uh, arguably had the best job in the world and was just traveling around tasting the best food in the world, he loved home food. He was so sick of restaurant food because everywhere he went, people were just trying to make impressive meals, and mm. all he wanted was just like a simple stew out of one pot that a grandma makes because she's been making it for sixty years for a family with love and. That was the food he was craving. Yeah, and I think that there's like this search for the authentic that does exist within, you know, high cuisine as well that people are, you know, like, and it's interesting too because like it it spans a spectrum. Like the truck driver that stops by the side of the road in American culture even, the diner really was supposed to be this place where they could get home cooking at the side of the highway. Yeah, mashed potatoes and peas. Yeah, and and gravy with a, you know, with a simple steak or something like that. Now that just happens to be what was characterized as home cooking for that era. And I think in this movie, you know, the ramen is is presented, uh, uh, even though they present it within the commercial realm of the ramen shop, you know, you have to imagine that it was also something that was cooked in the home. And well, people it, are it, seeking it, reconnection with that. 
I think ramen experience. also represents a food that you cannot make at home because you have to make it in a large quantity. It doesn't make mm. sense. You have to put so many different ingredients in the broth that it doesn't make sense to make two cups. Well, that's uh, interesting. You're making a yeah. hundred cups. So there, there's something about certain foods. Uh, I'm obsessed with soba more than ramen. Uh, they're buckwheat noodles and often eaten cold. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was asking my friends, do you ever make soba at home? And they looked at me like, no, no, of course not. It's like, this is such Sorry. a respected craft. And it's like, how dare you? Like, this takes a lifetime <laughs> to master. I'm just not going to mess around and make some soba on my own. Well, you could probably say pasta the same way, you know, like, uh, you know, like dried pasta. Yeah. To yeah. Italian versus fresh pasta, you know, but, uh, you know, quite a few people, I guess, probably in Italy do make their own pasta at home. There's a certain... I think especially during the COVID lockdown, a flour was sold out everywhere because everyone in Italy was stuck at home and they're like, let's make amazing pasta. Yeah. And here in America, I guess sourdough bread became the thing. Yeah. Or here in North America. Yeah, that was a positive moment in that sense. Yeah. I honestly didn't understand why it was sourdough bread of all the things you could choose. Because but... the yeast was sold out everywhere. But that's... <laughs> Like, but you could make anything. Like, it could have become an obsession with making the best ramen at home or something yeah. like that. But people yeah. chose sourdough bread. I think sourdough like, looks really cool on YouTube. I think that's why. Hmm. hmm interesting. But I, I, I'm unresolved on this point of like, um, to a certain extent of like, you know, the the dichotomy between the home cooked meal and the restaurant meal, and what are we seeking in the restaurant meal? Is it well, because we're lonely and detached from our mothers? Or our caregivers, whomever was yeah. feeding us, or seeking but I, that comfort. But I think the movie or... also distinguishes the fancy, formal food in the restaurant and the everyday lunch in the restaurant. Mm. Right, you know, the, like, the, 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 the the Italian pasta eating class. It's a yeah. very fancy setting. Or there's the scene, this the scene with the businessmen, and all the businessmen order the same modest meal, and then the young intern orders the fanciest meal and the rest feels embarrassed that they're not that knowledgeable. Well, the thing that's alluded to throughout the film too is even when they go by some of the ramen shops, it's like, oh, the train is getting off. You know, people are going to order their dinner when they get off the train. And yeah. so, you know, it's similar to an espresso in Italy, which is you eat dinner on your way home rather than, you know, sitting down for a home-cooked meal. If you're a solo individual, like you're an individual in the world, you don't have a family, you're a worker, and, you know, you're, you, there's an efficiency built into that model, right? Like, you're not going to stop here and linger. You're going to have this one great moment, and then you're going to yeah. go home happy kind of thing. And it's built into the yeah. industrial economy, um, in, 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 especially it's, in Tokyo, this idea of eating on just, your way home. Yeah, it's just, uh, to me, what is interesting about it is, I think, growing up in the Netherlands, regular food is regular food, and then you go out to eat every now and then. And when you go out to eat... It's usually chefs that were taught in a school. They probably didn't eat that well at home. And so through academia, they learn about what cuisine is. Mm -hmm. So there's not a, a local tradition. They learn French tradition or Italian tradition. So they didn't right. grow up eating that food. And I think it's very hard to make it if you haven't lived it for a long time. And the idea in Japan is you can also go to a celebratory dinner for thousands of dollars and something that you have to reserve a year in advance. Of course. But the idea yeah, that the... also the simple meal is well made, I find mm -hmm. that very moving when you're there and uh, you never you never feel cheated or ripped off. So if you pay 10 bucks for a meal, it's amazing. If you pay 20 bucks, it's more amazing. And if you pay 100 bucks, it's unforgettable. 
and 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 life changing. Mm. And so this idea that everyone takes pride in the uh, activity and wants to make. Of course, there's some shitty stuff, and there's there's chains and there's franchise stuff, but you just avoid that. But anytime you see a nondescript shop and you just try it, I've never been disappointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like one of the first meals I had in Tokyo was like very little research, just, you know, found a katsu uh, shop in my neighborhood that very quickly and went in. It was like all wooden, just like in the movie. Like we sat really low to the ground on like these old kind of creaky benches that there was not a huge line to get in, maybe a couple of people ahead of us, you know, they so they were very like warm there's steam kind of floating through the air everywhere and the sounds of thank you and height and like yes and <laughs> everything and then uh you know sit down there's only two things to order like in the movie they you know you take for granted they talk about we'll just do one thing or we'll have a special dish um yeah and then you know order the thing it comes as opposed to the incredible. diner where the, the the menu is like 15 pages or like cheesecake factory probably would be the <laughs> Yeah, and like we have Italian, we have Spanish, we have Mexican, we have Irish, we have everything. Yeah, yeah, you're looking for that one good thing. Anyway, had it, you know, an amazing experience, you know, very quick, though. It all happened in like, you know, 20 minutes left. And um, I don't know, it was just like a condensed, it's like a bouillon cube of an experience. Um, Yeah, but there's something moving about the idea that people really care about what they do. Yeah, everyone in the restaurant was like extremely attentive to me as like a tourist, and I wasn't surra- I wasn't. It wasn't a touristy restaurant. It was like on a second or third floor. I can't remember, but like, you know, everyone else in there was Japanese, but they were st- it, like they still were really interested in whether I drank the broth, so to speak, right? finished the whole meal, <laughs> you know, didn't leave a, yeah. a grain of rice in the bowl, kind of thing. Yeah, I, I do so. have to say, knowing from friends that moved away from Japan, that also. It's a very strict and hierarchical culture, and a lot of people don't feel at home and want to leave and want to be in the U.S. or in Europe because they feel more free and they feel more appreciated in their individuality. So, well, I was going to say, like, there's a crushing. That's where the work, the work piece comes in, and I didn't like the woman who dies, you know, and cooks the meal and <laughs> dies again. But like, you know, everyone just cramming a meal into their way home, but they're coming home like at nine, eight, nine p.m. Right, like there is a work ethic built into this film that even the truck driver, like he finishes launching this restaurant, he takes like ten seconds to appreciate the work. Right, he's like back yeah. onto the truck. Let's keep going. He doesn't become like a yeah. That's doesn't the go help another restaurant open. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> but I wonder if yeah. there's any match in here to the life of an artist or. Um, well, there there is the idea that uh, as an artist you focus more on quality than quantity and maybe sometimes there's the temptation to lower the quality and increase the volume but if you really Mm. want to make it the the best version possible and I think if you would if if you would link an artist to any business student they're like yeah let's let's franchise it let's scale it up and uh, but I guess the art world is pretty business savvy so maybe it's also like specializing and really caring, like obsessing about a single thing for a well, lifetime, which we've talked. Yeah, but I, one of the things I found interesting is that with ramen, they all have this platonic ideal of a ramen bowl in their head. And they're all striving, they're going towards that. So they're not being too creative. It's a more conservative. There's no vision. Yeah. Well, it's a more conservative effort where everyone is trying to perfect this in a, a similar Something direction. Something that's already been invented, yeah. 
Yeah, and you can distinguish the different broths from different shops. They're different, but it's not like someone is saying, oh, let's make ramen in a ketchup broth, and it's a conceptual joke. And contemporary art is more like how far away from tradition can we get? How mm. different can you be? And it's mm -hmm. not about like, but, oh, I mean, let's, I think let's, there's all, both worlds. let's all do a painting of a rose and let's see who can make the most realistic uh, flower. I think that holds for conceptual art, but not all art. Like there are still, there is still like sort of a zero sum game, like the best but the, in certain there's categories. Not the, the, the way they're like, okay, the, the, the pork is supposed to be on the right side of the bowl. And mm -hmm. when you start it, you have to touch it with the tip of the, chopsticks and then you have to look at the oil glistening i i yeah. think with 17th century realistic painting that's a, you can go to school and you can learn to appreciate details in the same way you appreciate ramen but well there's like a, art, yeah there's like yeah, a i don't know an, an, like bringing back to food for a second to get back to art there, you know that guy nasim talib who wrote skin in the game and um a few other books um he no. had this story about um, a restaurants and the industry of re you never want to go into the restaurant industry because the of of how they evaluate success and so in America anyway he refers to the most successful American restaurants um, seem you know are not the ones that get all the awards so actually if you look at how success is generated or evaluated in the U.S. it's like James Beard Award or whatever and so it's peer review for those awards. It's not customer. So there's, there's a difference rewards. between critical success and economic success. Well, yeah, well, because what they found was, you know, when they revisited restaurants that had won lots of awards, typically they all were bankrupt within a couple of years. Um, but if you looked at restaurants for popularity, you know, for the number of customers they served and their, you know, kind of those restaurants, you know what I'm talking about. Right? They've been 25 years in business, and you appreciate it. it's always like great. It keeps, you know, they they keep things the same. Those rest that had a much larger indicator for economic success, anyway. So he does, you know, he, he points out a bunch of industries where this is true. But I think you could look in the yeah, arts but it, as well. Yeah, but it's funny say. when you use the word industry already, and industry mm -hmm. implies scale and automation yeah. and efficiency, and um, yeah. my my hairdresser is Japanese, and he told me about this. TV program where they ask cab drivers in Japan, where do you go at night if you want late night noodles or things like that? Yeah. And they would give away all these secret restaurants and they'd go there and then those restaurants would become very popular because the show was popular. And right. at some point, all the restaurant owners started refusing the TV <laughs> program to visit their shop. It's like, we don't want a line of customers around the block. We want things to stay humble and uh, we want to focus yeah. on quality and we don't want this, this circus. So well, I, I thought was that was a similar it. thing. No, I think you're yeah. right. Like that, and America's great at creating those sensations. And then there's a volume of people willing to travel. Like, like I mentioned that chef's table that I was watching last night. It was about <laughs> yeah, Guy Fieri one, goes to to, to unknown well, diners. Yeah, well, it's about the top barbecue restaurant in, in Texas. But it had originally just been for like 20 or 30 years, just this old woman with not very many customers. Like, you know, just a normal number of customers. Like, no line at the door. And she had done, she'd been doing the same thing. She never changed. But then she got this award out of nowhere. And suddenly, you know, there's hundreds of people that line up for the barbecue now on Saturdays when they do their big thing. And it's like, it takes them all day to get a meal, but it's like this quote unquote religious experience. And I mean, you could be critical of that. And I certainly am to a certain extent, right? Like, it's like, I'm sure there's another shop down the road 
that didn't get the award, that's modestly working, doing the exact same thing, but that we've built a legend in this 85-year-old woman, and maybe she deserves recognition. But actually, at first, she re- she rejected it. She was very cranky towards this success, because she's like, I'm just doing what I've always done, and I just enjoy the craft of this barbecue. Yeah. And... Um, but we we really want the best, and it it I think if we come back to the movie, it's like coming back to that desire, you know, <laughs> to I don't know for an experience. I think probably to your point, where life seems filled by disappointing experiences. I once had this experience with my mom where she was like rude to a server, which I never would apologize for. By the way, I don't think that's a good call. But I was like, "What's wrong?" And she's like. Why it wasn't just the server, it was the meal. And I've had that meal and it's been the best. And this was nowhere near the best. It was second best. And when you've had the best, you don't want to settle for second best. Like you want you want to have that experience again. So you're seeking out that best experience, but you never reach it. And I was like, oh my God, my mom's like, I didn't realize that's why she's so rude. But people, I think, are seeking out the to relive these ner- the kind of yeah. euphoric experience, like that egg yolk a scene with the gangster and the and his partner and his, uh, his fiance lover is actually emblematic of the because it's like we have to describe this scene they like they put it he cracks an egg puts it in his mouth and then they like exchange it back and forth not just once five six seven I, times I was counting like, it it was in, eight times before the yolk breaks <laughs> and then the yolk yeah. breaks and it breaks like it's representative of ejaculate or something like but it's yeah. really a, a, like uh, there's this, you know, total release. It's a climax. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a climax for sure. So, um, I think we're, you know, we're, we're seeking that and it's such, it's so tied to the body, right? Like you cannot remove food from the body. And in fact, that gangster again, in the, in the final scenes refers to hunting wild boar in the winter and all they can eat is yams that they dig up and how hunters like when they kill this boar, they immediately pull out the guts and they roast it and they create ram yam sausages from the actual intestine from the <laughs> full undigested of yam. yam in the in the first track of the intestines. Yeah, yeah, and oh, what a wonderful thing to do together as a couple to go seek out and kill this boar <laughs> and eat this yam together. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the movie you you could read it as Monty Python as you said originally, but you can also read it as this like really sensorial this attempt to try and describe something it's i don't think it's narrative at all it's really hard it's to describe it's also kind of nihilistic it seems like the obsession with food goes so far that any other part of life is ignored so mm-hmm. you you could die for the food you could kill other people for the food it's really well it's, you might argue it's, that it's he, hedonistic yeah, it's like the most important approach thing. to life where it's all about the perfect bite and and, and yeah. nothing else matters yeah, and I guess that, yeah, I think you could go as far as to say is that there are people out there that are that food obsessed, but also that a film like this is a celebration of that culture and really probably yeah. should be read that way. And then ultimately, the, yeah. it's really hard to separate food from life. I mean, and why would yeah, you want and, to? Yeah, and the thing, the thing I want to argue, the thing I find highly interesting is that now with COVID, it's almost like a test of the health of each country. Um because obesity is tied to problems with COVID. And mm-hmm. So you could argue body positivity and it's okay to be fat and whatever, but we're really seeing the results of years of food tradition going down the drain and then which countries have problems. It, it, 
I just find it. Where do you see the the food tradition? Because we're not eating out, and all the restaurants are closed. No, because the the COVID deaths in the UK and the US are really high. Mm. So, but what does that have to do with the restaurant industry and food? It has to do with obesity, and it has to do with Mm. this idea that in Japan they're doing pretty well with COVID, and uh, Mm -hmm. I just. I just find it magical that they somehow make the best food and be and are healthy. So, you know, like each country has its own strengths, and I think Japan is amazing in food, and we can learn a lot from it. That's maybe mm. what I'm saying. Yeah, and I guess to bring it, that's an interesting point, and to bring it back to the my original because the, point, the, that for came example, actually there's, out there's of starvation. The shaming, like, the, the, the shaming mm-hmm. of carbs in, in the West. Everybody's like, you got to stop eating carbs. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're going to have a whole slew of heart attacks of people who think eating bacon all day is healthy. It's just this loss of tradition. Mm. And then every well, time tradi- we're yeah. try- we're I think trying to reinvent things, like, oh, yeah. what's healthy food? I think this caveman diet works. And then- Isn't it, I think it's a good point. There's this tension between innovation and iteration. And yeah. I was just yeah. talking to someone. And I think, yeah, innovation is great for software, but mm. it's not so good for food, I guess. Well, even iteration is really important in software at a certain point, right? Like improving upon a thing up until a minimum maximum is actually the right thing to do 80% of the time. 20% of the mm. time, the right thing to do is That's start That's the Google over. 20% project. Yeah. And take a crazy bet. And we get that every once in a while, and that's how new cuisine is invented. But the likelihood of success is very low, right? Um, iteration is the safer path for sure. Yeah. And you're building on a history. When you talk about, I think, tradition, you're talking about history and hundreds of years of iteration. So... Well, I'm also talking about well-being and the common good. And when you think about if you say, if you want to be healthy, you're going to have to go through this disciplined uh, monk Mm -hmm. life where you don't enjoy anything. It just doesn't work. People cannot do it. No one in their right mind can do it. So if you can't teach people to make healthy food that's enjoyable, uh, you can talk about... uh, protecting people from safety and protecting people from crime and whatever but obviously bad food mm-hmm. is a way bigger killer well i asked and some so friends rec- i asked some friends um under covid it like, seems like hey, an existential threat like we're talking about ten thousand yeah. deaths a hundred thousand deaths this is like millions and uh, hundreds of millions of people every year that just die from bad food habits it's yeah. kind of shocking when I mean, you think about it that yeah, way like, i mean i think if, um, if, if you would think of bad food if you would think of mcdonald's as like an enemy attacking Pearl Harbor and killing people, the numbers are huge. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Oliver went on a, on a major campaign, you know, similar to, to what you're, you're stating, especially in the UK, where he was like, this fried food is not tradition, you know, and it's a bad tradition to keep. <laughs> and uh, we're dying because of it, and we're eating a lot more of it than we ever did. Yeah, and then and it's, it's such a slow death that it's not as spectacular as someone getting killed by a terrorist, but the numbers mm-hmm. of... of people dying or dying early from bad food is, I don't know, it seems... Uh, it's also I'm not kind great for a, the environment. Yeah. Like we're, we're eating argument. more meat protein and, 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 and we're eating in ways that we're, are not sustainable. That's We can all recognize that. Yeah, and throwing away food and, and the portions are too big and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're but, over... Apparently people are way over buying under COVID, like at the grocery store. <laughs> they're buying yeah. twice as much as they need, like out of, yeah. I guess, hoarding mentality, but they're eating more too and i mean i've gained weight but I, um we started out buying way too much because we we're out of fear i guess it's like again a primal thing yeah i've gone back to not buying almost anything but yeah absolutely um yeah. i, I, I mean, always say it, like a, it, an empty fridge is a beautiful thing right like yeah. it means that you have to get creative but 
There's oh. there's a high-end uh, vegan restaurant in uh, New York called Kajitsu, and it's this traditional monk food that is kind of celebratory that you would only eat once every so many months. Mm. And so it's an elaborate dinner, but all vegan. And then they br brought this soup, and it has little pieces of concentrated gluten floating in the soup. And the waiter mm. was like, yes, Americans are so afraid of gluten. Gluten is very good for you. I love gluten. We call it foo, and it's a very uh, important part of the body, and you have to eat it, and please uh, enjoy it. And so I think this idea of avoiding gluten or avoiding carbs or whatever, it's c if you're eating white bread covered in Coca-Cola, then you should avoid carbs. But, if, you know? Yeah, you're, I think you've been in Europe a little too long. You're, <laughs> you're characterizing the American as like this... <laughs> Like well, America is, is a bag of Wonder Bread and pouring Coca-Cola. <laughs> no, but but uh, I think America is. I, I I live in America by choice. I wasn't born there, and I'm dedicated to building a life there. And I I love a lot about America, but food is not the strongest point of the U.S. I just and think that I think uh, well, twenty percent of it is incredible because it's so innovative. Because of I think because yeah, of the and, and because of, of all the mixing of different cultures. cultures. Yeah. yeah, 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 but. Um, the, um, I think many different regions have many different expertises that we can learn from. So, because mm -hmm. um, I think I if you ask a Canadian, like you know, what's the what's the Canadian dish, you're not going to get a very you'll get a way worse answer. Poutine? Even you, I won't even be able to give you the barbecue thing. It's going to be poutine or something like French fries with gravy and cheese curds. And to your point, it's like no one eats that actually. I I would eat it once a year max because it's so unhealthy and it's not really food that you would eat or perfect. Um, it's for getting drunk and then like indulging, right? Well, um, one of the most impressive meals I had was I was part of a festival in Japan in the north where the, the area was kind of abandoned and it, the, the population was aging a lot. The young people left because a lot of the factories in that region closed. And so they brought this art festival to create an interest for people to visit that region because it had a culinary tradition. So we just stopped at a truck stop where they were making uh, soba and vegetable broth. And because mm. these old people had so much time, they had perfected the vegetable broth and they just grew the best vegetables in a small scale. And it's like mm. one of the best meals I've ever had at a truck stop. And it's very impressive to me if you can make a vegetable broth that is, you know, unbelievably healthy and unbelievably delicious. It, it's pretty easy to throw something in the deep fryer. If, if it's crunchy mm -hmm. and salty, it's going to be delicious. But if you can make it, it's like when you order a salad at McDonald's, it's the saddest thing ever. So um, if you I can make healthy food, that's amazing. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> then I'm impressed. I, I'm a fan of McDonald's pizza. McDonald's salads are also something I've <laughs> yeah. a lot of. Um, all of the things that, that was McDonald's in the 80s, right? At. McDonald's pizza? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was '90s. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, we're we're running running out of time. I feel like because this is such a big topic, food ultimately, and and I do think food is an art, and it doesn't get talked about that it that way because it's sensorial, and includes the body, and there's it's performative. Anyway, it's just so interesting. Yeah. It's social. I mean, um, the, this the, just, yeah, this I just, the one of the interesting things to me also is that with food, we're going more and more towards the local. But mm -hmm. art is always about the globals. I, I don't know if art I mean, it's is not always about that. It, it, there are lots of local 
uh, artists, and there yeah. uh, th- that's a whole other topic of conversation. And I think it it's relevant because we're talking about food as a destination, or you know, or create food crazes, people traveling hundreds of miles to eat yeah. food, or get a lineup outside the door, and they're like, there's all kinds of relationships between the two that are similar. Um, I don't. I just don't know how to close this podcast because I think it's it's a topic that well, allows you to go almost anywhere. We're, we're both going to run out the door and get some Japanese food. Well, can so that's a good question. Like in Utrecht, uh, Utrecht, can you like can you is there a, a nearby ramen shop? There is, but uh, I've tried a few. They were not great, but there's one uh, uh, Donburi, like a rice bowl restaurant, that's very good. So I'm going to go there. Oh, I love yeah, Donburi's great. Um, all right, well, I'm yeah. going to try and go get. A ramen, and I could make my own. I didn't even give you it. Like I could do a whole I, fifteen yeah. on like Nongshim versus the reason, Nissin versus I, I, all I the different brands. Cl- I want <laughs> one one uh, uh, what do you call it? asterisk like a footnote. I'm very yeah. critical of the U.S. just like everyone is now, but I also love it more than anything else. So uh, it, there's a reason I moved there, and there's something about the idea of uh, opportunity, even if it's not real. There's something about that idea that is very powerful, and I. Mm-hmm. Most of my friends are American, and I find it a place where you can make friends really easily more than any other place in the world. So it's a, it's a very special place. I don't want to just say, like, America bad, boohoo, and that. yeah. But there's an, if there's ever going to be a new tradition, it's going to come from America. It's not going to come from anywhere else. That's my opinion. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it is, and also, any tradition from elsewhere in the world, like, full credit, like, that's where we started this podcast, which is like... You know, ramen wasn't exported very much internationally outside of instant ramen, which, by the way, is crazy how many people. I think they, they sell 98 billion servings of instant ramen. <laughs> in the world. But, like, um, you know, the idea that America can popularize a simple food and and create an obsession. I've always said America is so good at marketing and repackaging. Uh, yeah, I know, think ideas. it's because Americans are enthusiastic people. And sometimes that can be a positive and sometimes a negative. But they, you know, I think Dutch and Canadian are pretty s- similar. This is getting well, into I mean, dangerous could, territory if nationalism. No, but honestly, you could, you, but, but, if you, if you could come visit our city and there's there's like probably 25 ramen places that are no, better. No, but what I mean is like. Famous than, than the places in like New York. Bragging like, is, is, New is really frowned job. upon in, in, in other yeah. countries. And I think in the U.S. bragging is a good thing and. Uh, that kind of enthusiasm can be awesome. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not yeah. gonna say we're we're that different here, but we're not very good at, at uh, creating hype. We're like apologetic and. No, I think Canadians um, are much more modest in general. Yeah, but we do have a similar culture yeah. of like lining up for the best places. Like I said at the mm. outset, and food. I think we cannot separate food from the internet, and even in Japan, you know, like I mentioned, people still make choices based on internet review sites um, more than anything else. And the places with the longest lines have the best reviews. I mean, you could say it's chicken and egg, but um, the internet has completely changed the food landscape. That's, People travel for food, you know. If you don't mind that we go five minutes longer, I find the the food review apps very interesting because there's this, it seems binary. Either a shop does well or there's nobody. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like there's much in between. And it feel like it, there's a simple arithmetic problem where... If some people line up for a place, then just by that fact, more people review it. And then there's this snowball effect, this exponential difference between zero and being yeah. super popular. So well, there I, used to be this thing I, that I don't they know would if hire. That's a, 
No, but, but it's in funny the 80s when you and see... 90s, I remember people talking about hiring people to sit in the restaurant when they opened so that they'd look more yeah. popular. Like, so you pay people to sit, you know? But it's funny seeing, because apps are so uh, mathematic, uh, mathematically driven that you come into this basic math problem of like, okay, if, mm-hmm. if people don't like a place, it's zero, and if people like it, it's too much, and there's nothing in between, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the same. Same is true on like Amazon, Netflix, anywhere where reviews have kind of taken over, um, like Rotten Tomatoes for movies. Right, this is a movie podcast now. Yeah. Um, you know, there's probably some r- really great movies that are three point five stars that no one's ever going to see because it's not four stars, right? Um, yeah. And so we we I think you know the, of course there's the term attention economy, and where we have a limited amount of attention. To my point earlier, we seek out the best experiences. Because yeah. to have a second to have a second rate experience is such a disappointment. <laughs> I mean, we're spoiled in that way. Well, and, that's why they invented the, brunch to expand the food time. Oh, but I you think can do something a good breakfast a good lunch. point. Like not to say it's a good point, but like uh, that really removes the opportunity for accidental discovery and and dis- and like potentially someone who's doing a great job but going under under the radar because they're not boastful. To your point, right? So you know we're marketing. If if the whole world's driven by marketing, we're in big trouble, right? Because it's a psychologically manipulative. I've worked in marketing my whole life. It's all about manipulation, <laughs> right? So, um, and Create apps are all about manipulation as well. Yeah, yeah, and the entire software industry is built on manipulation of an engagement metric. So now you've got like you know a recipe for potentially watering down experiences and and us all loving or being really excited about experiences that our parents and grandparents would have thought were half-assed, not no yeah. attention to craft, not really very good at all. And that's probably the biggest danger. Um, I'd counter that. This that's is becoming why, like, a classic good point episode about algorithms. <laughs> well, I think the bottom line is I'm, when I was in Japan, let's get back to Japan. Like I think just walking into a random place is, is a worthwhile thing from time to time. Yeah. Like get off the review app, like use your eyes, use your senses. Like, yeah. let's think about food, right? It's smell, it's taste. Like you can, well, I think in Japan, it's, it's you can eyeballs. afford to, like you can, I think in Japan, you can afford to organically just wander and stumble upon something nobody notices. If you do that in the Netherlands, the odds of it being good are <laughs> one to 200 or something. So I have had a moldy You better use an app when Netherlands, you're in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah, I've had, I've had some pretty bad, like, you know, dry bread, moldy cheese kind of thing. Like, or Berlin. <laughs> I've had some really yeah. horrible food in Berlin. Oh, man, the I've, best but was I've the, had horrible... the fire Festival, the cheese sandwich. <laughs> right, yeah. That's when marketing gets, like, way too involved, right? You end up... Yeah. Reality does not match the thing. I think you just have to, like, trust yourself. And one of the things people tend to do is remove tr- themselves from the trust equation and trust the critic or trust someone else rather than their own taste. You know, and it's sim- it's similar in art where, like, I don't know good art. And it's like, yes, you do. You just have to taste a lot of it. You have to see a lot of it. And then you'll know, you know. Yeah. Trust yourself. Trust yourself. That's a good ending. All right. Trust yourself, folks. Thanks for listening. Okay. Um, yeah. See you all we'll, next we'll, week. We're doing this. Well, we don't know if it's next week or every two weeks. I, I mean, I'm I'm all for a week, but Raphael's traveling. I'm sometimes yeah, traveling. Yeah, it's a bit uh, complicated, but we'll try. Yeah, we'll try our best. And we, we do this out of love for actually ourselves. <laughs> we're doing this for the dollars. We really, no, we really enjoy just hanging out and talking about the things we love. Um, and we love that you listen to. So thanks for listening. But, um, you know, really at the end of the day, it's about friendship and Raph and I are good friends just trying to figure yeah, out. Yeah, it's, it's a good excuse to hang out. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks again.
Okay, see you all next week. Bye bye. See ya. Bye. Kaikoku dewa zetenji uru sare nai no desu.